uh, if you're like me, you've used a tool in a way that it was not intended to be used. You know, maybe you used a wrench to pound in a nail, or you used a screwdriver for a chisel or a punch. You may have even broken the tool, like I have before. Or worse, you hurt yourself in the process, and, and the danger only grows if you add power tools to that or machinery. You shouldn't use those for what they're not intended for. And then there's taking something that isn't even a tool and using it as a tool, you know, like taking a butter knife and using it for a flathead screwdriver, or using a, a rolling pin for a hammer. Again, you, you risk breaking that utensil, that, that implement, and the risk increase if you add electricity to that. You know, there, there's problems with that. Take, for example, using an iron to make grilled cheese. One person did that, ended up with a, an iron-shaped hole in their couch, because they did it on the couch, of course. It was a teenager, thankfully not one that I know. But <clears throat> I also read about one of those life hacks, you know, that they, they put online uh, about how to make a grilled cheese sandwich using a toaster. They would put the toaster on its side and then put the, the bread and the cheese and then the other piece of bread in it and turn it on. Well, for one woman in, in Great Britain, uh, she didn't end up with nicely toasted grilled cheese. She ended up with a nicely toasted house because evidently it turned broken. I don't know. It went on fire and caught fire to her house. So obviously there's, there's some danger in using items the way that they weren't intended. And, and that's not the only problem, just the danger of what could happen to your house or to yourself. But there's another problem with using something like a kitchen tool or, or implement for something it wasn't used for. There's an example in a story I read of an individual who, whose mom would use a slotted spoon for her cat's litter box. Now, thankfully, she never also used that for serving food. That wasn't the problem. The problem was when this individual went to somebody else's house and they saw somebody using a slotted spoon to serve food. You've got to understand, this person never seen this implement used for anything other than using it in a cat litter box. So they freaked out. They went nuts. And even after they were calmed down and said, no, no, this is actually a kitchen, this is the kitchen tool, utensil, they couldn't eat because of the association. I don't blame them. I think I'd be able to eat after that. But in all of these cases, the problem isn't the tool. It's the user. That's the problem. Tools would work just fine if you used them for what they were intended to be used for. So when we use it for other purposes than it was intended, that's where we run into problems. And that was the problem that Jewish people in Paul's day had with the law. They were using it for something it was not intended to be used for. They're trying to use the law in a way to be righteous before God. That's not why God gave them the law. The effect actually was problematic because not only didn't they achieve the righteousness they were hoping for, but it actually, it hid the gospel from them. And so Paul, he is very clear. He's he's teaching them about the gospel, these Roman believers. And so he has to address the Mosaic law because he believes the Mosaic law is part of the gospel story. He couldn't unhitch himself from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was what the gospel flowed out of, naturally flowed out of. God, the Old Testament was pointing, both in the law and the prophets, it was pointing to the gospel. And so, especially with Gentiles, the way that Paul would, would teach about the gospel in Paul's day, especially with the, the way that Jewish people were using the law, 
made people think that he was saying the law was irrelevant. Or worse, it made them think that he was saying the law was sinful. I mean, Paul had said that through the law comes not righteousness, but a knowledge of sin. He said that in Romans 3.20. And then in chapter 5 and verse 20, he said that the law came and increased the trespass. And then most recently, last week in the fifth verse of chapter 7, he talked about how these sinful passions that are at work in, in people through, they work through the law, through the Mosaic law. And that can make it sound like the law is the problem. But Paul taught that before Christ, we, we're all under the power of sin. And that reveals itself, he said, through death. Death reigns over, over everyone. That's not just Gentiles, that's Jewish people too. So these old covenant people were under the power of sin, and that was the context in which God gave them the law. And in that setting... The law used its authority under sin's reign to not produce life, but to produce death. And again, that could make it sound like Paul's saying, well, the law is the problem. The law is in cahoots with sin and with death even. So realizing that's how people could respond to his teaching, I mean, likely he had run into Jewish people who had actually said things like that to him. He took the time, starting in Romans 7, 7, to clarify what he's been saying, to say he hasn't been teaching that the law was sinful. But because others think that, he, he asks the question to himself. In, in verse 70, he writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? He emphatically denies that. He says, by no means. What he's been teaching is that the Jewish people in his day didn't understand the law. They didn't understand it correctly. They were misusing it as a tool to establish their own righteousness. And that's not what it was given for. The law cannot bring life to sinners. That wasn't its purpose. But the fact is that under the power of sin, the law had stimulated even more sin. It had even brought death. And death's the evidence of sin's power. And so all that comes together, and Paul has to clarify, that doesn't mean the law is sinful. The problem isn't sin. The problem is sin. It's not the law. It's sin. And their reign over all of us, including the Jewish people who were trying to use the Mosaic law wrong. So the Mosaic law is holy, but what sin has done is it's used the law for its own purposes. That's what Paul's going to make clear in our passage this morning. So we're going to be in Romans 7. You can turn there again. It's on page 887. We're going to look at these next six verses. Romans 7, starting in verse 7. Page 887. And what Paul's going to do is in these six verses, he's going to explain how the sin and the Mosaic law, the sin in our lives and the Mosaic law relate, how those two relate together. He's going to teach us four ways that sin and the Mosaic law relate to each other. Sin is defined through the law. Sin is replicated through the law. And sin brings death through the law. But the law is not sinful. It's holy. So those are the four ways that the Mosaic law and sin relate to each other. Sin is defined, is replicated. It even brings death through the law, but the law is not sinful. It's holy. Now, even though Paul is addressing a situation that was 
was happening in his day. A situation that addressed Jewish people that were incorrectly using the Mosaic law at his time. It still speaks to our situation. So, so don't think this is just some historical thing that we, we look at. We, we're tempted to do the same thing with the rules that are found in the Bible. Same thing that Jewish people in Paul's day were doing with the Mosaic law. And you can see this in how people inadvertently sometimes teach our children that following God's rules is the path to life. It's not intended. But that is what we can convey sometimes. Or how we adults sometimes can operate as though that's the case. As we talk about, well, how do you know you have eternal life? And we then begin to talk about how we've tried our best to follow the rules. That's our assurance that we've been accepted by God. So it's not just a first century problem. We want to pay attention so that we understand the law correctly. How does sin and the Mosaic law relate? Well, first, the first way Paul teaches us that sin and the law relate together is this. Sin is defined by the law. So look at the, the second part, rather, verse 7. Paul's been very clear. He's, he's been adamant. By no means, he says, the law is not sin, but there is still a relationship between the two. He's not denying that, so that's why he says yet. He's saying even though the Mosaic law isn't sin, it's still true that it relates to sin. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Paul's Paul's very clear that sin reigned from Adam to the giving of the law. It's not that sin wasn't happening, but at that time, during the time before the law, The Gentiles, the nations, they were sinning in ignorance. They didn't know what their sin was. They were still guilty of sin. They were still responsible for it as as adults who are responsible, fully responsible for our actions. Their ignorance didn't rescue them from sin's consequences. But there wasn't a clear understanding of what sin is without God's revelation. So that's the idea behind this knowledge that Paul's talking about here. And he's already said this, actually, in Romans 3.20. He puts it there. Through the Mosaic law comes knowledge of sin. When God revealed his rules for that old covenant relationship with Israel, that, those rules revealed the truth about their sin. So Israel was able to, through the law, come to understand what sin was. If it hadn't been for God giving people rules giving his people rules, they would have remained ignorant. They would have been just like the nations, sinning, but doing that ignorantly. And so Paul gives a specific example where he he takes it from the Ten Commandments. He says, if it hadn't been for the truth of the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covenant. He wouldn't have known what it is to covet. He still would have coveted. But he would have done so in ignorance. The Mosaic Law taught him through that Tenth Commandment That coveting goes against what your creator and your redeemer for Israel, the the creator and redeemer intends for his people. So this holy God doesn't want us to crave things that don't belong to us. And once that craving had been defined, they could understand sin on a whole new level. They had guilt before that. Their conscience caused them to experience that guilt. They recognized they'd done something wrong, but now they could define it. So sin, sin isn't just an unfortunate act. Sin isn't just something that isn't best because it's not best for the most people. Sin isn't just wrong because it won't get you what you really want. Sin is wrong. It's a problem because God says it's a problem. And it's a problem because it doesn't reflect his holiness. 
What God's law did, it, it explained what was happening inside sinful hearts. They weren't just doing something wrong because it didn't work out for them. They were doing something wrong by desire, even just desiring something that belonged to someone else. And that's how sin and the law relate to each other. The law defined the old, the sin for the old covenant people. And when we understand the law through the new covenant, through Jesus and his, his apostles, we could take a commandment like coveting and we can learn the same thing. We can learn what sin is. We can learn what coveting is through that. So the law can, through the new covenant, through Jesus' teaching, can still help us define sin. But, but understand this, friend, if you, if you think about what, what people that come to church do, and, and you kind of think of us as just kind of coming up with our morality and then trying to hold people to it, understand that's not what we're doing. When we talk about sin, it's not arbitrary. We're not coming up with morality. God reveals morality in his word. He defines what sin is. He tells us what's right and wrong. But when he does that, he's not doing that as a first step for us to have some self-help, self-improvement process. He doesn't tell us that so we can then fix it. Just knowing about the problem doesn't fix it. It doesn't enable you to avoid coveting if you know about coveting. Because the problem is a sinful heart. And that's what the law reveals. So just knowing that you have a spiritual problem doesn't enable you to fix that problem any more than if you find out you have a physical problem, the knowledge of having a physical problem enables you to fix it. You think about when you go to the doctor and you have revealed that you have a physical problem with your heart, let's say. Finding out that when you go and get examined doesn't enable you to then fix the problem. You still need the doctor. In fact, that should tell you and encourage you to go to the doctor so that they can help you, so that they can actually fix your heart, if that's possible. So, in a similar way, that's Israel's, the revelation through the law, it was only pointing to the problem. It wasn't the solution. So, when you read about God's rules, it shouldn't give you an idea, okay, I can fix this problem. It, it, what it does is it reveals that I've got a problem. I've got a sin problem. That's what the revelation should have done, but that's not what Israel was doing. The Jewish people in Paul's day were misusing the law. They were using it as a means to try to fix their sin problem. So just like a, an ultrasound machine or a CT scanner cannot fix the physical problem that it observes. And it isn't a problem of the, the ultrasound machine or the, the CT scanner if it doesn't fix the problem. That's not what it was intended for. Same is true with the law. It's not the solution. Jesus is the solution. And the law was pointing God's people to his grace, to their need for God to fix their problem. It should have sent them to him. So, that's what the law should do for us. When we understand through the law and through God, Jesus and his apostles teaching through the law, we need to come to understand what the good news is all about, why it's good news. It's good news because we have a problem. We're sinners. And we can't fix that problem. Only God can fix that problem. And he does that through his son. He sent his son who was perfect. Jesus never did anything wrong. 
should never have been punished. And yet he came as a substitute. He came as someone who takes the place of others. He took on the punishment. He suffered the punishment that sinners like us deserve. And then he was raised from the dead. He took that punishment on the cross and he was raised from the dead so that everyone who trusts in him, that's how we experience forgiveness for our sin. That's how we experience release from sin's power. That's how we experience solution to the punishment that we deserve. That's how we experience new life to then follow Jesus. So that's what we want you to believe. If you, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, that's what we want you to understand. That's really what the law does. The first way that sin and the Mosaic law relate to each other is sin is defined through the law. But that's not all. Not only is it defined that way, second, sin is replicated through the law. I use the word replicated. That's what came to mind because of where you might use that word. If you think about where do you use a word like replicate? Use it in biology. Talk about cells, right? Cells replicate. They copy themselves, produce more cells. But cells aren't the only ones that do that. Viruses do that too. There's just something interesting though about viruses and how they replicate because cells can replicate on their own. Viruses can't. They need a host. They need something that would help them multiply themselves and so a a virus needs a cell and if you think about what's happening you have this bad thing this virus that attaches itself to a good thing the cell so it attaches itself to the cell kind of worms its way in it uses the cell to produce to reproduce these other viruses that are then going to burst out of it and go off to other cells but sin was doing something similar with the law. That's what Paul is going to talk about here. He's described sin as this personified power, and he says that it seizes an opportunity through the commandment. And that word opportunity, it can be used in other cases to talk about a base of operations. It's like a starting point for doing something, accomplishing someone, whether or something, some venture. It'd be a starting point where you could gather resources and 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 do in order to accomplish whatever it is that you wanted to accomplish. Just say you wanted to start a business. In the ancient world, they'd use this as this is the place where you gather resources to start a business. If you needed to win a battle, this is the base of operations where you set everything up so that you can win the battle. It's not used literally that way here, but it it describes sin as utilizing the commandment. The commandment was the perfect place for sin to come and replicate itself produce more of itself. More specifically, Paul says that the revelation of this this commandment not to covet, it was the perfect starting point for sin to then produce coveting. Like a virus. It's using this host. The commandment that says do not covet and it's replicating itself into all kinds of forms of, of coveting. How did it do that? I think Everett Harrison, he puts it well. He says, don't to a small child may turn out to be a call for action that had not even been contemplated by the child. A sure way to lose blossoms from the garden is to post a sign that says, don't pick the flowers. You know, as parents, how this works. You know, you want to keep a child from doing something that they're going to come across, and so you try to head them off from that. You tell them not to do that. And then what you've done is you inadvertently just put that idea into their head. You weren't intending to do that. 
They never thought about picking flowers until you told them, don't pick the flowers. Now, now that's what they want to do. They never thought about it until the prohibition came. And now their life's purpose is to pick the flower. They have to pick the flower. Just because you prohibited it. So Paul's using coveting here that way. When Israel was told not to covet, that was a perfect place for sin. It was raining to set up its base of operations with this goal to, to produce coveting. And that's what it did. As soon as the line was drawn, that was the perfect place to create this desire to step over it. Many, many commentators at this point, they point to the example of Augustine in his work titled The Confessions. He was a teenager, and he records in, in this, this book, The Confessions, he records that there was a time when he stole some pears along with some other boys. They didn't steal those pears, though, really because they wanted to eat the pears. In fact, they actually fed them mostly to a bunch of pigs. They, they stole the pears because they wanted to break that rule. They wanted to steal. And I think it's helpful the way he describes what he was doing. What he says is he was attempting to be like God. This is what Augustine says. He says, did I find it pleasant to break your law, speaking to God, confessing this to God? Did I find it pleasant to break your law unpunished? And so producing a darkened shadow of omnipotence? What a sight. A servant running away from his master and following a shadow. Could I enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden? And Tim Keller comments on this incident. And he says, we have a deep desire to be in charge of the world and of our lives. We want to be sovereign. Every law that God lays down reminds us that we are not God and prevents us from being sovereign to live as we wish. In its essence, sin is a force that hates any such infringement. It desires to be God. What was the first temptation from the serpent in the Garden of Eden? You will be like God. That was the essence of the first sin and it's the essence of all ours too. So under sin's reign, we are running away from God and chasing this mere shadow of God that we try to see in ourselves so we crave what we're doing is we crave the freedom that we think we see in god freedom to do what he wants the only problem is god's freedom is to do what he wants for the good of himself and and ourselves and everyone else that's what we're running from in trying to create our own freedom we're running away from what is good so in our sin In this state of rebellion, when we hear what God wants, his command, we have a knee-jerk reaction where we want to cross that line to be like God, to have our own rules. The command isn't wrong, though. It's not wrong for God to reveal the truth of his commands. It's not wrong to direct us to what is good. But under the power of sin, this is what happens. That command is used by sin to engender the very thing it prohibits. So when Israel heard that they should not covet their sin, which ruled over them, used that command to produce all kinds of coveting. That's the second way that sin and the law relate. Sin is replicated through the law. The third is this. Sin brings death through the law. And and here we have, what we now have are these three authorities that Paul's talked about as, as being at work in the old era. So he's talked about these three things before. Before the coming of Christ, you have the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of the law that he's been addressing. 
So back in chapter 5, he talked about how through Adam, our representative, sin gained power over all of us. Sin was reigning. And he also talked in that, in that chapter about how death also very, very clearly rules over us. We all have this, we're, death's power is inescapable. And death is actually the evidence of sin's power. And he also mentioned the law. He described the arrival of the law in that chapter. He said it, it functioned in this situation where sin ruled. That's where God gave the law. And then in chapter 7, he also talks about how sin's authority is functioning along with sin's raid. So we have these three authorities here. And Paul's going to explain how they work together in these verses. The question we have, though, at, at this point is, what is Paul getting at? He, he actually shares a narrative here. He tells a story about an experience. And the way that he tells it, it sounds like he's talking about his own individual experience. We have a few problems, though, in, in order to put that together and figure out when is he talking about. Because he says in verse 9 that he was once alive apart from the law. But when was this Jewish man ever apart from the law? <laughs> he grew up with the law. Some people talk about the, the way that Jewish people around this time would uh, say that a Jewish boy was not subject to the commandments until the age of 13. It's out of that that grows this, this ceremony of the bar mitzvah, which probably wasn't happening then, but the idea was there. So boy becomes a son of the commandment at 13. So some think that's what Paul means. Before that time, he was living apart from the law. The problem is that the same ancient source that tells us that at 13, someone is subject to the law, it also says that age five, that a person begins to study the scriptures. So how is he apart from the law? I don't think there was a time in Paul's mind when he could think that he was living apart from the law. He would never have conceived of him, himself or ever had an experience where he said, okay, at one point I was thinking, no, I'm not, the law is not a thing, and then this happens. So on top of that, the way it describes about Paul dying, it's hard to explain. It's certainly true that he was not spiritually alive. His understanding is that he was spiritually dead in Adam. So he wasn't spiritually alive, and then because of his acquaintance with the law, he then died. That's not what he would be saying. So that's led some people to say, well, maybe Paul's using this I in a figurative way. He doesn't mean himself. And, and they would suggest he's pointing to Adam and Adam's experience. Because Adam did exist before the law, for the commandment at least, the commandment that was given to him, and well before the law. And it's also true that Jewish people, we're going to see this, I'm going to go into this more, but they understood their solidarity with their ancestors in a way that they could say, they could talk like this. They could say, I was in the garden and mean it. The problem is that what Paul's describing here, sin is, is in the picture. Sin is not in the picture until Adam sins. But here you have sin active just like it, it was talked about earlier. It's using this commandment as a base of operations. It's active already, and that was not the case with Adam in the garden. So in what is the situation in which you have sin already active, but it's, the law is not here yet? I think Doug Moo is... Provide, he provides the best alternative. He sees this as a reference to Israel and to Israel's experience. So why is Paul saying I if he's referring to what Israel experienced at Mount Sinai? And why, why does he sound like he's talking about himself? 
because he is. So Paul's understanding of his relationship with his ancestors is he, he was with them. He viewed himself just like Jewish people at the time did, as being a part of what they experienced. Each Passover, Jewish fathers and sons, they were directed to this question and answer uh, exchange in Exodus, from Exodus 13. Jewish rabbis around the time of Paul, they made it very clear that the fathers were not supposed to say that it was their ancestors who, their fathers, who experienced the Exodus. So the Midrash on the Passover states, in each and every generation, a person must view himself as though he left Egypt. As it is stated in Exodus 13, 8, and you shall tell your son on that day, saying, it is because of this which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Jewish people around the time of Paul would talk like this. They would think like this. To view themselves as being there when the exodus took place. Only Paul is not referencing that specific pivotal historical moment. So I understand, not without difficulties, but that this is, that's what Paul's doing here. He's not talking about the exodus. What he's talking about is being with God's people as they received the law at Mount Sinai. So he's not distinguishing himself as though, he, well, he's not saying, well, I wasn't really there. He's saying, as though he was living at the time, that this was the experience. He, along with Israel, they were alive. They were alive and well, even though they were slaves in Egypt. They were alive and well on their way to Mount Sinai. But things dramatically changed when they received God's law. Deuteronomy says that the people heard from God directly as he gave the Ten Commandments, possibly more. And what they did is they pleaded with Moses. They said, look, we're not going to live if God keeps talking to us directly. You go, talk to him, then come back and tell us. And the Lord actually commended them. He said, that, I would that they feared me always this way. But Moses then goes up the mountain. He's gone for 40 days. And what did the people do? Immediately broke the commandment that they heard directly from God himself. Made a golden calf. They committed idolatry, which interestingly enough, Paul associates with coveting in Colossians 3.5. Now, the Lord's very clear about the effect he intends from the law. It says it in Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my, comm- my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. This is direction for life. It says the same thing elsewhere. If you obey, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. Again, he's not doing that because he's providing them a means through the law of doing that. But that is what the law points to and promises that through, if you obeyed it, it would bring life. But for Israel, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death. And again, Paul associates so closely with that generation. He says it proved to be death to me. God held out the promise of life to that generation. But they did not live in his promised land. They died in the wilderness. This is Paul's story as much as the Passover and the Exodus were his story. So coming back to his point about sin and the law, the law did not produce life. It produced death. But sin's power 
wasn't seen at work in God's people until the law came. When the law wasn't there, before the law, the power of sin wasn't demonstrated in their life. They were alive. So that's why he begins the section, begins the second part of verse 8, for apart from the law, sin lies dead, or more literally it says, for apart from the law, sin is dead. James says something similar about faith. He says, faith without works is dead. Faith apart from works is dead. Saying that faith is ineffective, demonstrates no power. If there isn't also present works, good works. And Paul's saying something similar here. He's, he's saying that sin doesn't demonstrate its presence. It doesn't demonstrate its power when the law isn't around. It was dead in that sense, for Israel. Before the law came, the commandment not to covet, Israel and Paul identifying with them, they didn't show sin's power over them. They were living while coveting. They were alive, and then the law came, and it produced death there in the wilderness. So, Paul's explaining that the commandment, like a virus, using a cell as a host, The commandment was used as a base of operations to produce the very thing it prohibited. While it was in that base of operations, it deceptively, sin, used the commandment to deceptively hold out the promise of life as though it's attainable. But it then killed those who sat under the law through their disobedience. So the law didn't produce life when it came to Israel. And any Jewish person in Paul's day who was was acting as though the law could produce life, they weren't paying attention to their own history. The Mosaic law was not an instrument that God used to produce life, to make them righteous. That's not what God used the law for. It was an instrument that sin used to produce death. And we need to keep in mind that the situation is fair, even as we, we say all this, We deserve, according to Paul in Romans 1 through 3, we deserve to be in this situation. We deserve to be under the power of sin. So we can't excuse ourselves. The problem is not the situation. The problem is the way that these Jewish people, again, are using the law as a way to correct their problem. I mean, Jewish people in Paul's day went so far as to say the law could bring life. One Jewish person looks like they were living just after Paul. They described their situation this way. They said, but now... The righteous have been gathered and the prophets have fallen asleep. And we also have gone forth from the land and Zion has been taken from us. And we have nothing now save the mighty one and his law. If therefore we direct and dispose our hearts, we shall receive everything that we lost and much better things than we lost by many times. It's a Jewish person saying they're living after a time when Israel had been removed from the land again. They'd been removed from Jerusalem. And what he's saying is we can get it all back. God's given us his law. If we, just, if we just orient ourselves in the right way, we can get everything back. Law is not the solution. Under the power of sin, the law brings death, not life. Every, every Jewish person in Paul's day should have known that axiomatically. They should have known that's what the law does because they know their history. Their ancestors, their fathers, they along with them in that sense, 
died in the wilderness. But that doesn't mean that the law is the problem. So even though sin used the Mosaic law to replicate itself, even though it used the law to bring death, exerting its power over us through death, that did not mean that the law was sinful. So that's the last part to what Paul's saying here about the relationship between the law and sin. This is his final answer to the question in verse 7. The law is not sinful, it's holy. So in explaining the relationship between the law and sin, he says they're not equated. The Mosaic law is holy. So if you look at verse 12, the word so shows us that this is Paul's concluding thought. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The Mosaic law was given by a holy God. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an error. It wasn't a sin. The law is obviously holy when you understand it in line with God's purposes. The law revealed a holy God and it revealed God's holy expectations for his people. But under the power of sin, it also revealed their situation that they were under the power of sin. So that that commandment that prohibited coveting, it was not sinful. It was an expression of God's holy his holy character. It was an expression of God's holy expectations for his people. They should not covet. That is what it means to be holy. And it was righteous. It, it was revealing what is right, what is fair, what is just. And the commandment is good. Just as God declared when he created the world, he said, it is good. He was saying, it's, it can function for the purposes for which I made it. That is what was true of the law, true of this commandment. It could carry out the function that God intended for it. It was good. So the law hadn't failed to fix God's people. It wasn't like God had, this was God's attempt. Okay, I've got a problem. People are sinful. Let me create a people, give them the rules, and then they'll do what I said. And oh, that didn't work. There's not any conflict when God gave the law with his plan overall that included the gospel from the beginning. We only struggle with that because we misunderstand the purpose of the law. It was never intended as a solution. It's like a CT scanner, like an ultrasound that tells us we need surgery. We can't take that tool and perform the surgery. We can't take the tool and fix ourselves. We have to go to the doctor. So the law was intending to bring us to, point us to the one who could fix our problem. The law isn't the problem. It's the user. We, we often use that phrase, user error. Talk about when a, a person tries to use a computer system, a program, maybe something on their phone, an app, and things go wrong. Now, when that happens with me, I'm sure I'm not alone, that I assume, well, the problem really is the app. I mean, I'm sure something's going wrong with the app. And 99 times out of 100, probably 999 times out of 1,000, it is my problem. I'm, I'm using the app wrong. It's user error. It's not the app. So when you use rules to try to solve your problem, the problem isn't the rules. Rules are good. They're right. The problem is we're trying to use that in a way that God never intended. So God's not the problem. 
It's not God's fault that we can't use these rules to fix our problem. It reveals the truth. The truth is we're sinners. We cannot hope to solve our own problem with our obedience. We're slaves to our sinful wants, our sinful self. So our only hope is to be rescued from that by grace through Jesus, not by effort, not by merit, not by achievement, but only because of God's undeserved kindness to us in Jesus. Is that what we're teaching our kids? Is that, is that what we give to others as the solution to the problems that we see? You know, when we look at our society, there's lots of problems we see in the world. And we see what people are trying to push right now into our Ohio laws. Trying to make it easier to murder children. Trying to make it easier to mutilate school-aged children. Do we think that the solution to that problem is legislation? Don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for the sake of those children. But that can't get sucked into thinking that that's the solution. Rules aren't the solution. Sin is the solution. So really, that should really work in me to see that, to see wickedness like that. It should encourage me to share the gospel with people. To, to send out the only hope that they really have. Not to, not to push, well, we got to follow these rules. That's what's going to be the solution to this sin problem. No, it's not. Yes, vote. Yes, be, be careful about uh, caring for people who can't care for themselves. But don't look at that as the solution. When we teach our kids about the Bible, are we stressing all the ways that they should be good little boys and girls? But are we also teaching them that they're sinners, that they need Jesus. Again, don't get me wrong, we, we do want to teach kids what is right and wrong. We do want to teach that, but not exclusively. When they fail, and they will fail, if your child's not failing, if you don't think your child's sinning, you're not paying attention. <laughs> but when they sin, our response should never be, hey, you know what's right. We've taught this before. You need to go and try harder next time. That's not what we should tell them. We need to say, you know why this happened? The same reason it happens in me. We need to identify with our kids too. Because we're sinners. And what that tells us is the same thing that it tells me. You need Jesus, that I need Jesus, that we need Jesus. That's what God's rules do. Ultimately, through our failure, they point us to Jesus. Join me in prayer. Jesus, we, we pray that you, the one who always obeyed, perfect sacrifice. Our only hope. What you did, what you accomplished for us. We ask that you would, by your spirit, reveal the truth of that.
that it would take on center stage, that we would never treat you like a good example, merely a good example. As though you, you show us the way that we ought to live and we'll try really hard to just be like you. You taught us the law. You taught us what it was pointing to. It's like coveting, pointing to what's going on in our hearts, not just being angry. Or not just murdering, rather, but the anger below that. Not just committing adultery, but the lust that, that is below that. It starts that sin. You taught us that the problem is a sinful heart. And you came to rescue us from that. Help us to see the good news through the law. Help anyone here who has not seen that before, not recognize that they are sinners. You would see that truth. That they would see the seriousness of that truth. And that they would They would respond by the power of spirit that you sent us when you went to be with the Father. Through that spirit, they might have life. They might turn from their sin and trust in you. And then help us. Help us to follow your your example because you've saved us. And to put the law in its right perspective. We would not look to the law as a means of of rescuing us. That we would instead see it for what it is. That CT scanner, that ultrasound that identifies the problem. We would employ that with those that are lost. We would employ that with our children. And only... Live in the power of your spirit as we rely completely on this acceptance that you've won for us by your death and resurrection. Thank you. Thank you for doing that when we did not deserve it. Amen.